Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in Public Policy podcast. My name is Ursula Hackett and today I'm delighted to welcome Professor Sidney Tarrow, who is the author of Movements and Parties, Critical Connections in American Political Development, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Welcome to the show, Sid. Thanks very much, Ursula. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to have this conversation because this extraordinary book takes us on this amazing tour of the relations between movements and parties over the history of America. Um, And it takes us through these very both short and long sort of cycles of contention. You you call it a telescopic excursion, which I like very much, through um, the uh, anti-slavery movement, the uh, questions of the agrarian populist movement, women's rights, civil rights, the labor movement, the Christian right, and right up to date to the Trump administration and beyond. So it's this extraordinary journey. And I wondered if I could ask you first, Sid, um, tell me a bit about how this project came about. What's the origin story for movements and parties? Uh, well, there's there's a short answer and a long answer. I'll give you the short one. Uh, it's a combination of uh, my reaction, like many Americans, to the shock of the 2016 election, uh, which I saw really as the triumph of a movement over a party, that is, the Trump movement over the Republican Party. Uh, and that's the short answer. The somewhat longer answer is that I've always been interested in movements and parties and their interactions. Going back to my PhD dissertation in Italy in, would you believe it, 1963, uh, when I encountered the Communist Party and the peasant movement in Southern Italy. And this seemed to me like a bizarre combination uh, because I'd always, I grew up in Brooklyn, which was an Italian American neighborhood. And I'd always thought of Southern Italians as very conservative, church bound and clientelistic bound. Um, And here was a peasant movement that had taken place in the late 1940s and early 1950s, which had been quite violent in some places and succeeded in wresting an agrarian reform from the Christian Democratic Party that was the leading party in government. And I wondered what the communists' role was in this. So my dissertation was on the relations between the peasant movement and the uh, Communist Party. Um, And it was a stretch both sociologically, because the party was mostly a working class party, and geographically, because the Communist Party had had virtually no presence in Southern Italy before 1945. In fact, not even before fascism, because it was a Northern party. Uh, And so it was a stretch sociologically, as well as geographically. And many of the people I met when I went to the South to interview were actually Northerners who'd been parachuted in by the party to try and 
uh, conquer the peasantry. What they called it quite openly was missionary work. Uh, that was the way they felt about it. And uh, it turned out to have been only a partial success. Uh, the party was never able to break the um, threshold, or I should say the ceiling, of 30%, and in most cases, never even reached above 20% of the vote. And so the puzzle of the book was uh, framed as what happens when a working class party from a foreign region uh, tries to encounter a domestic indigenous peasant movement in a backward society. Uh, and that was the puzzle that the, the paper, that, that the book addressed. It was published in 1967 by Yale under the title Peasant Communism in Southern Italy. Uh, and then I went off and did many other things and I learned a number of different methodologies, uh, but I never really uh, came to grips centrally with that issue of party movement relations until the election of the Trump movement uh, in 2016. And then I felt this is really something I know about. It's something I know about, not from American history, but from Italian history and politics. And so if it, if it sounds strange, it probably is. I took the insights uh, from a book that was written about a reality uh, 70 years earlier on the other side of the Atlantic, and I try to apply those lessons to the United States today. And this idea of the movementization of parties is really a central conceptual uh, and sort of sort of theme throughout the whole of this 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 book. And I wondered whether you could tell us a bit about what you mean by the movementization of parties. And you're talking about party movement relations and how that might relate to the movement, the, what you call the movement society and, and, and this idea of, again, the hollowing out of the parties as well. Um, because one of the all central arguments in the book, as I understand it, is that, that, that movements and parties are never completely distinct from one another, that they, they, are, they, are, they, they are not entirely separable in that way. Um, so, so tell us a bit more about movementization of parties. Well, I think you... Hey, you, you got it exactly right. Parties and movements have never been completely separate, except in the uh, rather sterile categorization that social scientists use, where one specialty arose in our field to study parties, just as another specialty was arising in sociology to study movements, and never the twain should meet. Uh, it's taken the real collapse of the classical American party system and the, ro wor the rise of what I called uh, in a book with David Meyer, uh, the movement society for political scientists and sociologists to become alert to one's other, each other's contributions and to try and bring them together. I shouldn't take too much credit for this because I owe a great deal uh, to my uh, now late mentor, Charles Tilly, for this insight, but in particular to my other uh, collaborator, who's still very much alive, Doug McAdam, uh, who's been working on party movement relations uh, since his book on the civil rights movement in the 1980s. And uh, the start of this book academically was when uh, Doug and I were about to attend Chuck's funeral in New York in 2008. And we said, we really should try and do something in Chuck's honor. And uh, Doug said, I have an idea. Why don't we 
talk about the relations between movements and elections. And so we published a piece in Perspectives on Politics very shortly after that laid out some of the problems and we rewrote it for a social movement collection that Bert Klundermans brought together in 2013. And so uh, that was the beginning of it all. Uh, Doug, in the meantime, was writing a book called Deeply Divided, in which he and a collaborator took on the issue of the growing polarization of American society, uh, as the title suggests. And unlike many of the political scientists who studied uh, this question since the turn of the century, he saw polarization as a social phenomenon and not simply as a as an electoral phenomenon. Uh, and he went back in uh, time to the 1970s when he believes this polarization began. And he looked for the roots of it, not only in the conflict between civil rights and segregationists, but also in the institutional changes that the parties instituted in the early 1970s in in their internal nomination system. He saw the rise of the direct primary after the McGovern reforms as one of the main efficient causes for the movementization of the party system because it weakened the position of party organizers and party uh, bosses, uh, and it opened up the gates for non-party activists to participate in primaries. And that was first the case with uh, veterans of the anti-war movement and the women's movement on the left. But in particular, it uh, opened the doors of the Republican Party to the Christian coalition and allowed evangelical Christians Uh, a formative role at the grassroots uh, in bringing people like themselves or people who claim to be like themselves into the higher ranks of the Republican Party. And if you look at many of the people running the Republican Party today, they are the product of the movementization of the party, which goes back to the uh, 1970s. Uh, In the book, as you've seen, I detail many of these stages, and I won't go through them, but those were all predecessors for the Trumpian takeover of the Republican Party today. So would you say that movementization necessarily involves the weakening of parties, or or, 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 or is there some, something else in play here? Well, it can involve the strengthening of the parties. Uh, if we go back to the Civil War, for example, the uh, the, the move of a considerable portion of the abolitionists into the Republican Party strengthened that party, which had really only been formed six years before in 1854. The abolitionists strengthened the hand of that party and they become the leading edge of the party. They called themselves the radical Republicans, as you know, uh, and they emerged from the war as the leading force in the Republican Party and were responsible for the passage of the three Reconstruction Amendments, which basically uh, upended the classical federal constitution and turned uh, the American state into a much more centralized system. So it's happened before and it's happened in ways that have strengthened the party system. Uh, Very much, a, a great deal depends on the strategies that are followed by these movements. If you look forward to the next chapter of the book, which is on the agrarian movement, the attempt of the agrarian movement to move into the party system was an utter failure. 
the, pep, the populists uh, won a few governorships. They were popular in some states of the South and the Southwest, but in the 1894 uh, uh, elections, they chose to support Bryan's candidacy in the Democratic Party, and they were essentially wiped out for the, for the future. I mean, I wanted to ask, there's a couple of things there that I wanted to ask you about, Sid. And I mean, I mean one of them, it, 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 the, our listeners, I think, will be very interested to know just the extraordinary historical sweep of this book, that it goes right back, you start really with your story with the 1850s and you move it all the way right up to to the modern day. Um, uh, modern day to 2022. 2022 and, and looking forward very much as well. Absolutely. And, and I, I'd love to have, I hope we can have a, a very, uh, there's, a, there's a few things I'd like to ask you about that as well. And I'm wondering about this periodization, actually, and this is a very American political development question. Um, what, why do you start in the 1850s? Um, I mean, it's there's some interesting observations you make at, at that time, thinking about the anti-slavery movement and its relationship with the uh, radical Republicans. Um, and thinking in particular about a, 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 a movement that lacked an, what you said an established recipe for collective action, and I was wondering uh, uh, whether uh, you considered thinking about the Jackson presidency, the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, maybe some of the religious revivals that had taken place during the eighteenth century into the nineteenth century. I'm just wondering why the eighteen fifties is the moment. Is is this? Is this is this a story about the critical juncture of the Civil War, of course, or or, or were there other considerations that that informed your periodization? Well, you you've used the the term that I was going to use to answer your question, and that is critical junctures. Um, the eighteen fifties for me was the beginning of a political juncture in American history, uh, and much more fundamental than many people give it credit for because it was so outshone by the Civil War. But what happens in the 1850s is the breakdown of the balance rule in Congress. I won't go into the nitty gritty of of, uh, history for you, but the balance rule was an informal rule in Congress by which the two political parties agreed to leave slavery off the public agenda because they knew how divisive it was. And they knew that it would threaten the uh, small beachheads that each party maintained in the other party's major region. So they agreed to balance the entry of new states between slave states and free states. And that uh, balance rule lasted until the early 1850s, when an ambitious uh, publication uh, uh, sorry, an ambitious political group decided that it was time to open up the West to uh, uh, slaveholders, uh, which in turn threatened the livelihood of the considerable uh, portion of New England farmers who had moved to the Midwest, what was known as the West at the time. And they had come as small farmers and clearly were not uh, anxious to be competing with slaveholders and with slave agriculture. Uh, That really breaks up the coalition that had constituted the Whig party for the previous 30 years. And it leads to the breakdown of the Whigs and the opening uh, for both the Free Soil Party 
uh, and then to the Republican Party, which it gave, it gave rise to. So I see the 1850s as the beginning of a longer critical juncture of which the Civil War was really only the culmination. So you have this, this uh, conceptual apparatus. Of course, we're all familiar. If it's, the scholars of American political development will be very familiar with this idea of a critical juncture as being this sort of punctuated equilibrium vision of how uh, change advances in this very sort of stop-start fashion around these organised around these particular critical events. And I wondered how you how you connect that concept in your writing to the idea of a critical connection. And of a critical event, are these things? Are, do you think of these as synonymous with one another, or are there differences between them? Am I splitting hairs here about uh, linguistic uh, differences? No, you're not splitting hairs. But uh, if I may permit to cite you <laughs> a new book that just came out, uh, which is edited by David Collier and Gerardo Monk, and it's called "Critical Junctures and Historical Legacies." Insights and Methods for Comparative Social Science. Uh, This is a a book largely written by comparativists for comparativists. In fact, there's very little on American political development, sadly enough. But it does have a chapter written by a certain Sidney Tarot called Mobilization, Protest, and the Conflicts of the 1960s. What is the legacy and how did it unfold? And I don't mention this to cite myself. Uh, You've already been very gracious. But what I found was that there's a fundamental difference between the critical shock, the moment of crisis, um, and the broader political juncture, uh, sorry, critical juncture of what it's a part. Uh, And the important thing about that is that it focuses attention not on the shock itself, but on the antecedents of the shock, and in particular on the legacies of the shock. If you look at the book, you'll see that the editors make a great deal of this difference, and I think it's a very important one. So I just, I think, illustrated it in the case of the Civil War, which was the shock, but in fact, the critical juncture begins with the antecedents, for example, the breakdown of the balance rule, and ends up with a legacy, uh, and that legacy is uh, the Reconstruction Amendments and the rise of Jim Crow politics in the South. Uh, In my piece in this book on critical junctures, I compared the French events of May 1968 with the Italian uh, equivalent and with the American 60s, and I pointed out that while the critical shock in France was far greater and far more publicized, mostly by the French. Uh, nevertheless, the legacy of that shock was much less than the legacy of the 1960s in the United States uh, or of the, um, uh, the movements of the 60s in Italy. And I think that distinction is an important one, and it's one which I hope to make more of Uh, In the next piece I write, it won't be another book, I hope, in the next piece I write on the distinction between the shock of the Trump uh, election and its legacy, which which we are still living through at the moment. Fascinating. Yes. I'd like to um, move us to the period of time immediately after the uh, triumph um, or the successes uh, and, and, and then, of course, some 
very substantial backsliding and, and pressure and, 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 and opposing pressure against the um the those who uh are supportive of uh, in, in, uh, first of all, the, the abolitionist cause, but then also, of course, of the, recon, the, the cause of reconstruction and, 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 and so on. And, and that is to flash forward a little to your to your agrarian movement and the, and the conversations you have. Something you mentioned just a little while ago, Sid, about the, the, the extraordinary successes that you see of the anti-slavery movement and then the, the failures of the agrarian populist movement. And I wondered what your thoughts were about... Um, why the agrarian movement was unable to repeat the sort of breakthroughs that the anti the abolitionist movement had is this really is this a question about which would you say is the most to blame is this about the underdeveloped administrative state is this about the lack of a civil war juncture um is this about the sort of difficulties of adapting grassroots tactics is it about sexual cleavage i mean you mentioned a lot of things in the book but i wondered what you thought were was the most important of those factors in explaining that relative failure yes um well to start at the historical surface uh the failure uh, came in uh 1896 with a failure to grasp uh that the agrarian movement couldn't play in the same ballpark as the democrats and republicans uh that's a a, a classical movement party interaction where movement uh recognizes its own weakness and tries to shift into the political system where it just doesn't have the right tools. And I lay this out uh, in the chapter. But more deeply, uh, there's a structural story and a, uh, a sectional story that lies behind the failure. Uh, the, the sectional story is this, and that is that the the bulk of the base of the agrarian movement came in the South and the Southwest. And these were regions that had not overcome the racial divisions uh, of, uh, uh, of, of the Civil War. So many of those small farmers who were what we today would consider on the left because they were building cooperatives they were opposing the railroads. They were opposing the middlemen. Uh, these were people who were progressives in one sense, but they were also racists. Uh, and that was quite naturally a part of their heritage because they came out of the South. So there's a sectional problem in building an agrarian movement and turning it into a national party. In the, the, in the Northern Middle West, the party was mainly made up of Republicans. In the South, it was made up of former Democrats who were racists. And since something like 40% of the farmers in the South were black, this, this was an obvious impediment to building a unified movement. This, the other structural part of the story is that America was on the cusp of becoming an industrial nation with an agrarian hinterland instead of the agrarian nation uh, it had been before. Uh, and this meant that the trade unions were not yet mature enough to uh, constitute an, an autonomous force that could uh, forge a coalition with the agrarian movement. Uh, there were attempts to do so, uh, but the radical uh, uh, movement, sorry, the radical trade union movement at the time, which were the Knights of Labor, were really on their way out 
just as the agrarians came in, and who was on their way in but the American Federation of Labor, which was, as you probably know, uh, not inclined to rock the boat. It was a pro-business union confederation under Samuel Gumpers. So the structural changes in American society had not yet proceeded far enough for uh, a unified former labor coalition to form, and the racial basis of sectional politics in America was the other major impediment. So the, the, the failures were both structural and territorial as well as political. One of the things I find so fascinating in your account of this uh, period um, was was the, the the account of some of the grassroots tactics that organisations like the sort of Texas Farmers Union, um, uh, the sort of alliances that they formed to diffuse ideas about how to cooperate, about how to manage their interests, how to try and leverage change on their own. But I, I just found that utterly fascinating. And particularly the point that you made that, that they subsequently found it very difficult to scale that up, that it wasn't possible to use those sorts of grassroots tactics that they had used so successfully at this local level and to some extent at the state level to try to leverage that um, for change with the national political parties. And I'm just wondering whether you see that as a general rule, that it is actually in American politics or perhaps elsewhere, that it's very difficult to do that sort of uh, ad- adapt grassroots efforts in that way to encourage change with national political parties or, or whether you see that um, as, a, as an aberration in some way? Uh, it, it's not an adger- aberration. Uh, as you've uh, indicated, it happens very often when movies encounter movements encounter parties. In fact, in my own biography, it goes back to my experience in Southern Italy where I would attend local Communist Party meetings, and I would discover that while most of the uh, apparatchniks of the party were interested in broader political issues, many of the mass base, the peasants at the base, were really trade unionists. They were farm farm workers who had come out of an organization called the Federbracanti, uh, the National Federation of uh, landless farm workers, and their interests were corporate, their interests were economic, uh, while those of the party were the broader political reasons. And one reason why the communists failed so badly in southern Italy was because they were trying to unify the economic and social demands of their various bases in northern, north and south under a broader political rubric, which they called the Italian way to socialism. And that was a failure because those uh, economic and social cleavages were so far apart. And just to continue this theme about divisions within a particular movement or difficulties of overcoming sort of um, uh, uh, sectional cleavages or divergences within a particular movement, if we flash forward to the women's movement and the the, the fight for women's suffrage um, that you describe in such extraordinary detail um, in this book, you talk a lot about the sort of more militant versus the more institutional groups within the suffrage movement. And I I wondered if you could just give us a, give the listeners a general overview of how you see those groups interacting, what the consequences of the interaction between the militant and the more sort of institutional groups were that lack of unity for the success of the cause. And then also what came afterwards once suffrage had actually been granted the 19th amendment and so on. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, 
Yes, well, uh, the, the National Women's Party, which was the core of the mil- more militant branch uh, of the movement, uh, was perfectly happy to get in line together with the more conservative feminists as long as there was a central focal point of the suffrage. As long as that was the goal of the movement, they could unify behind it uh, without paying very much attention to the really very fundamental differences that underlay their strategies. Uh, After that was passed, the National Women's Movement uh, uh, turned its attention to what came to be uh, the campaign for the Equal Rights Amendment. That campaign went into low gear during the 1930s through the 1960s, and it only became fundamental again in the 1970s when the fight for the ERA uh, uh, was renewed. Uh, But once the suffrage was passed, the bulk of the women's movement turned away from radical goals towards what we would call today social service goals. And many of these feminists were trade unionists. Others were involved in benefit societies, friendship societies, uh, social service groups, uh, and they turned their attention towards uh, welfare for women. Uh, And when the National Women's Party would put forward this demand for an equal rights amendment, they were terrified by this prospect because they felt that it would sacrifice the gains that they were trying to make through peace, piecemeal reform. So it was a classical distinction between militancy and institutional strategies. Uh, and that divided the movement for many, many years until the 1960s. And then we're dealing with a very different situation. Yes, I'm, 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 we're all thinking a lot about the, the ERA right now, aren't we? Just after the sort of efforts in Nevada and Illinois and recently Virginia that to, to try to actually ratify this thing after such a long time and, and, and the sort of legal shenanigans um, that attend that. And I, I mean, I, I wonder um, then whether you could tell us a little bit about some of the similar sorts of dynamics that you describe with respect to the labor movement and with respect to the civil rights movement, the, the, the interactions between, on the one hand, the sort of the institutional resources that these movements are able to um, uh, use on their in behalf of the cause versus sort of what you call extra institutional resources. And I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit about what that distinction is and how those resources can um, work together on behalf of a cause. I mean, one of the things you, you mentioned with respect to this, the, the the women's organisations is that you have these 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 situations where these group these different wings can come together, but on other in other times they have they've split apart and they've been at odds with one another. Um, how do you see the use of extra extra institutional and institutional resources? Do they often work together, or is this something that can often come apart and work against one another in practice? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm sorry to sound like a broken record, but it, it takes us back to the key concept of critical junctures. Uh, during a critical juncture, uh, very many things that had been considered uh, settled uh, become unstuck uh, and new groups are formed. Old groups form, forge different alliances uh, and cleavage structures tend to to, to change. Uh, this was what certainly happened in the 1930s, 
when we find the uh, unskilled and semi-skilled workers find finding uh, an institutional home in the CIO, uh, the newly formed industrial workers organization, which forges an institutional compromise. That's a very important part of it with the New Deal. So we have a movement that is the most militant of the trade union groups at the time. The AFL was still very conservative. Uh, and we have it engaging at the same time in non-institutionalized, really innovative forms of collective action, uh, like the uh, 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 sleepovers and takeovers of the factories, at the same time as they're engaged in institutional lobbying and alliances with the Democratic Party. That combination is really the result of the critical juncture uh, of the Depression. Uh, And to the extent that that critical juncture gives way to the post-war political system, which it does as early as 1945, uh, uh, that uh, alliance becomes almost entirely institutionalized and the semi and the non-institutional forms of collective action uh, are not only suppressed by the Taft-Hartley Act, but begin to disappear as unionization rates decline. Uh, We see the same connection uh, of what in what Milkus and uh, Titchener call a formative movement, we see the same connections in the civil rights movement. When I was uh, uh, young and far more radical than I am today, uh, I tended to look down at the NAACP uh, along with many of the young progressives that I knew at the time. But in fact, the NAACP is at the heart of this juncture between institutional and non-institutional collective action. So I'd like to turn now to another of the many pieces of of, of wonderful conceptual apparatus that you advance in this book, and that is this idea about different forms of hybridity, um, relations between movements and parties in the the sort of latter part of the 20th century into the 21st century. If we think about them in terms of uh, sort of uh, horizontal or vertical or blended hybrids, different forms of party group relations. Um, And you've got some examples uh, in your book of these different sorts of hybrid. You're thinking about um, the anti-Iraq war movement, the Cock Network, and the Tea Party, three very different sorts of organizations, different different sorts of purposes. Uh, and, and, And you think of Am I right in thinking you think of horizontal hybrids as being the sort of traditional group party relations? Um I wondered if you could tell us just for the listeners, those who haven't read the book yet, would like to, um, what those differences between different sorts of hybrid are. And um, I was wondering whether you think of the horizontal, the sort of horizontal hybrids um, as those with grassroots support, deep support from public constituencies, whereas a sort of vertical hybrid, um, you, you use the example of, of the Tea Party, whether they think of them as, those as mere astroturf organisations that, that lack grassroots supports, or whether that's there's an entirely different characterization that would be more accurate to describe the differences between those forms of hybridity. Yes, I think you've 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 hit upon one of the more complex parts of the book, and the one that's most difficult to explain to somebody who hasn't uh, read the book, even to somebody who has read the book, and even to somebody who's written the book. That is to say, to myself, uh, I, I'm not sure in retrospect that that typology of types of 
hybridity is as revelatory as I thought it was at the time. But I think what's important, and here is something you've mentioned before, is what Schlossberg and uh, Rosenberg, sorry, Schlossman and Rosenberg call the hollowing out of the party system. Uh, If you look at some of the work that Theta Scotchpole has done with her students, and especially with uh, Alex Hertel Fernandez, uh, some of this work shows the difference in the organizational growth of groups within the Republican Party uh, framework and those groups outside the framework who are allied with it. And the financial resources uh, that accumulate in the first group are much, much smaller than those that accumulate in the second group. In that second group, there are a number of organizations that were quite small at the beginning of the 21st century, which began to blossom financially as big money, uh, particularly hidden money, went into these nonprofit groups, while the groups associated with the Republican Party directly begin to lose out. So hybridity is in part the result of party weakness and the growth of non-party organizations. And we see this in particular in the Trump campaign. Trump Trump starts out his uh, campaign with nothing more than his own personal reputation uh, and the purely formalistic support of the Republican uh, party apparatus. What he puts together at the grassroots are an extraordinary set of coalitions among groups that have been around for decades uh, groups like the NRA, groups like the Police Benevolent Associations, uh, groups like the Tea Party uh, and various gun clubs. He puts together a coalition of these groups at the base, which had nothing to do with each other uh, other than a general ideological affinity. Uh, and that is Trump's organization. Uh, and it's something that we tend to forget about because the media have been so uh, focused on Trump as a mesmerizing, charismatic, or demagogic leader. All those things are true, but uh, but Trump has uh, a grassroots organization that largely explains uh, his success in 2016. And that's that's what led me to the concept of hybridity. Uh, So it was an empirical observation that led to an effort at theoretical typologizing, I'm not entirely sure that that effort came off. But I think that there's a really, that, I mean, some really interesting insights here in, in, into the various different modes that those relationships might take. And I don't know whether, I, I mean, perhaps I was a little hasty in making any kind of determination about what we might infer from each of those forms of relation about the level of public support or otherwise um, of a particular uh, movement, um, and and I wanted to pick up on what you were saying just there, Sid, about about this broad coalition of interests being brought together, different groups that have sort of might have similar goals or different goals that overlapping that are brought together. And one of the terms used that actually was quite striking to me to describe that the, the idea of a movement bringing together all these different sorts of coalition partners. We talked about intersectionality, and of course that's one way in which we might understand that term intersectionality. But there are others, of course. We're thinking about intersectionality as a sort of overlapping forms of disadvantage and of forms of oppression and of privilege. And uh, maybe this is a little bit 
beyond the scope of our conversation here, but I just wondered whether you might reflect upon that term intersectionality and how it applies to some of these movements that you have identified um, and their relationships with uh, parties in America, uh, you know, over the course of American political development. Yes. Um, let me cite the work of another colleague who I think has done some of the best work on intersectionality. Uh, Dana Fisher uh, has a chapter in the book I edited with David uh, Meyer on the resistance, and she has another piece, a related one, on intersectionality. Uh, she followed uh, the progress of the national level marches following the Women's March of um, February uh, 2017, uh, and she measured statistically the interaction among different support groups uh, within one another's uh, demonstrations. So if you will, just as an example, she studies the climate change group and she asks how many supporters of the climate change, anti-climate change uh, march came out of the women's movement? How many came out of the African-American movement? How many came out of the scientific movement? And uh, the numbers are significant, but not majoritarian. Most of these uh, marches although they made a tremendous effort to be intersectional, were basically sectoral marches, with the exception of the original Women's March, which was not really a Women's March, it was an anti-Trump march. So what we have uh, at the end of this period, which she studies of 2017 through 2018, are, is evidence of intersectionality, but it tends to decline as people go back into their relatively cloistered uh, sectional homes. And the only thing that brings them out again, and this will reveal my prejudices as a moderate progressive, uh, what the only thing that brings them back together again is the election of 2018 and then the election of 2020. Uh, those intersectional moments are significant, but they're significant as moments rather than as a, an accumulating mass movement. That's so interesting. I mean, I, th I think it, it reminds me also of Legina Gauze's book on um, protest, The Advantage of Disadvantage, and if it's um, uh, uh, published very recently, actually. Um, but she also how, has how, mentioned... How are you spelling, spelling her name? Oh, Lagina Gauze, uh, G-A-U-S-E. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but, okay, uh, but she has this wonderful book, Advantage or Disadvantage, which has some really interesting uh, data on protest activity and, and various ways in which the we might understand the characteristics of the protesters and also of their cause. And it, it sounds as if a lot of this may well be uh, very much relevant to the, these these conversations. I mean, I, I think we have to come now to to to, to the to the Trump, the anti-Trump movement, and and to and to and to, uh, and to Donald Trump's presidency. And I mean, I think that um, you you have some very compelling uh, chapters in the latter part of your book about the ways in which Donald Trump, as a the Trumpist movement, and you're you're quite open about describing it in that way, the Trumpist movement takes over the Republican Party, um, and then some reflections also about 
what might come next. And you mentioned 2018, you mentioned 2020. And I, I was wondering whether there's anything that since your book has been published, Sid, um, that uh, gives you any additional thoughts on the sort of viability of the Trumpist movement going forward um, uh, from any developments that have taken place since that publication and, and, and maybe more broadly, your sort of sense of hope uh, or pessimism about the future of American democracy in the sort of post-Trump world, but also a world which is extremely unequal and one that is extremely polarised as well. So is there anything that has, that has, since the as I say, since the publication of your book, that has that has set your thinking in a particular course on that on those ideas. Um, well, until two months ago, uh, I probably would have said January the sixth uh, is uh, the watershed uh, uh, that is probably going to divide uh, the MAGA movement from the mainstream Republican Party. Uh, I've become less certain of that, uh, if only because the mainstream Republicans uh, continue to bow their obeisance to Trump and indirectly to the movement that he continues to control. So I'm not as certain as I, as I was then that the long-term effect of the insurrection is going to set the Republican Party back on the route towards being a um, conventional conservative party. Uh, But then a month and a half ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. And we're in the middle of that, not only militarily, uh, but politically. The United States is in the middle of reacting to that. uh, And it's one which has left the pure Trumpians in rather an embarrassing position. Uh, If we look forward a few months to the 2022 elections, we are undoubtedly going to see the Democrats pulling up videos of Trump on the campaign trail saying, Russia, if you're listening uh, and claiming that Putin is a more reliable source than the American intelligence agencies. We're going to see the Democrats, if they have any sense at all, uh, reminding the Republican Party of how pro-Putin and anti-NATO and anti-Ukraine the Trump administration was, and by extension uh, to, uh, uh, to paste that label to the Republican Party today. Uh, the Republicans, though, are very quick on the trigger to, to shift uh, their own uh, position on Ukraine as it becomes more and more clear that we're probably entering a new phase of global history. We may not be going back to the Cold War as it was in the 1950s or 60s, but we are certainly returning to a far more uh, uh, cleavage-based uh, uh, international system. And that being the case, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen to the Republican Party. Uh, Trump, if, if I'm reading the situation correctly, uh, Trump is increasingly irrelevant to the debates within the Republican Party about the war, because every time he opens his mouth about the war, uh, he risks uh, reminding people of how pro-Putin he was during his administration and allowing the entire party to be 
stuck with the label of pro-Putinism and anti-democracy. So we're, we, we're very much in the middle of, uh, of a, if you will, a legacy uh, of, of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I'm so sorry, Joel. I just, I, I must say um, uh, something about the last part of your book, which is where um, uh, you bring in some comparators with Italy, with South Korea, and with Chile, um, in order to reflect upon the future of American democracy and uh, and the relationships between movements and parties. And I, I wondered um, whether you could tell you. I feel like we should say a little bit about that because this is a this is wonderful piece of American political development writing, and that also has very much this comparative angle, of course, for for obvious reasons. Um, given that you are a comparativist um, by 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 training and by. Uh, uh, um, and so on. Um, but I wondered about those comparators, why you chose those particular comparators, whether, whether there were other comparators um, cross-nationally that you were thinking of that might help to shed light upon America's sort of democratic crisis, um, if, it's too, if that's not too strong a word. I regard that chapter as the weakest of the book. Uh, it's, 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 it reaches out furthest from the major themes of the book, and it's more illustrative than analytical. Uh, it, uh, it shows different combinations of movement party relations during different critical junctures. Uh, and I think it succeeded as far as that was concerned. I'm not so sure that it added anything analytically to the book's message as a whole. Uh, and why I chose those three countries uh, is probably, well, it would be embarrassing to some people, but not to me, and I hope not to you. I chose those three countries because I know something about them. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, in, in two of the three cases, I read the languages. Uh, and in the third case, South Korea, where I don't read the language, um, uh, much of the best work uh, is in English because South Korean political scientists don't get tenure if they publish in, Kore- in Korean. So I chose those uh, three countries because they uh, illustrate varieties of party movement relations. But I think they also uh, demonstrate that critical junctures, the outcome of critical junctures are not always easy to uh, interpret. Uh, the Italian case uh, is the one I know best, and it's one where uh, very few people at the time would have predicted that the f- world's first fascist dictatorship uh, would result from a critical juncture. Many people were afraid of communism. After all, uh, 1917 in Russia was still very much on everybody's mind. Uh, some people thought there would be a return to the conservative, liberal, so-called liberal system of the past. That's why so many conservatives supported Mussolini, because they felt they would use him to reestablish the traditional system. Uh, They were wrong, uh, and they didn't predict, but nobody could have predicted, that he would end up uh, inventing a new form of authoritarianism uh, that then uh, had many uh, imitators throughout Europe and even in Latin America. Uh, the um, the South Korean case is in many ways the 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 poster child for a movement party relation because it it demonstrated 
how a, how powerful a peaceful movement can be uh, and how it can have an effect on the shape and the uh, alignment structure of the party system. Uh, and then finally, the Chilean case is the most complicated of all because it goes through a really a 30-year period and demonstrates that when movements for democracy are suppressed as they were uh, by the new political party regime that uh, emerged from the dictatorship, when movements are submerged, that can have a long-term, very negative effect on uh, on uh, the political dialogue and can lead to the kind of tremendous uh, uprising that we saw in Chile uh, in 2019-2020. So it's a, I, I find it an illustrative chapter. It was a lot of fun to, to write. I'm not exactly sure in retrospect why I did it or, or why anybody would bother to read it who's fundamentally interested in American political development. Well, I enjoyed it very much. And I think, it, I think for the, some of the reasons that we, we uh, have discussed over the course of this conversation, I mean, certainly that some of the uncertainties that we, or Americans, those all around the world face in, in terms of thinking what comes next. Um, um, but also in that, that distinction that you made very early on, the conceptual distinction between the, between the shock and the legacy, you know, and just sort of trying to disentangle those, those differences and understanding which of these models America most resembles and how, what kind of lessons we might learn from them. Um, I think it's a really interesting exercise and one that perhaps we Americanists need to do more often. Um, um, so, so I think it's a very valuable chapter for that, for that reason. Um, Sid, I have one last question for you, um, and and that is, you, you hinted at it early on in this conversation, but I, I'd love to know more a bit about it, and that is, what's next for you? Um, where is uh, where are your next projects taking you, and could you tell us a little bit about those? Well, you're very kind to think that I'll have a next project. Um, I keep swearing to my wife, uh, uh, who's also an old Oxonian, by the way, uh, that I'm not writing any more books. And I've, I, if I say it often enough, I'll probably convince myself. I think I will probably not write any more books, although I've just uh, submitted the fourth edition of my textbook, Power and Movement, uh, which I'd like to give a plug to. Uh, and, but I think that will be my last major effort. Mostly what I'm doing is reflecting uh, in short articles and talks and lectures uh, on the relations between movements and democracies. And the latest paper I've written on this takes off from a book by a political theory colleague of mine called The Democratic Sublime. Uh, his name is Jason Frank, and I warmly recommend the book to anybody who's interested in uh, uh, theoretically driven uh, political history. Uh, and in that paper, I try and grapple with the problem that there is a kind of democratic mood, what he calls the democratic sublime, that does not necessarily conduce in the direction of big D democracy, but which is often a component in big A authoritarianism, uh, because authoritarian leaders are able to grasp the, the potential of support uh, for themselves from people who are animated by what Frank calls the democratic sublime. Uh, and that's a paradox that people have been talking about since the French Revolution uh, with Jacob Talman's uh, book, uh, his anti-Rousseauian book, but uh, which we 
uh, now have a lot more information about uh, when we look at many of the authoritarian states that have emerged in the world uh, since the 1990s. Uh, I only need to mention Putin's Russia uh, to point out that we do not understand Putin's Russia if we see support for him as completely uh, composed of support for authoritarianism. There are, uh, and um, many books of the, uh, which point this out are now appearing. Uh, Popular Authoritarianism by Alex Matovsky, for example, which just appeared, uh, demonstrates how many people uh, see themselves as grassroots Democrats, uh, but who support Putin because he saved the country from chaos, uh, from the chaos uh, of the Yeltsin regime. So that's something I'm fooling around with in my spare time uh, when I'm not busy uh, engaging in uh, author meets critics uh, uh, discussions of movements and parties uh, and and being honored uh, by podcasts like the one that you've uh, been kind enough to organize. Oh, Sid, it's been an absolute honor to talk to you. Um, I'm so grateful for you for taking the time. Um, The book, everyone, is Movements and Parties, Critical Connections in American Political Development. Please do read it. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, And all that remains for me to say is thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a great pleasure. And I look forward to interacting with you again.